questions can and must be asked about all technologies and media. What happens to us when we become infatuated with and then seduced by them? Do they free us or imprison us? Do they improve or degrade democracy? Do they make our leaders more accountable or less so? Our systems more transparent or less so? Do they make us better citizens or better consumers? Are the trade-offs worth it? If they are not worth it, yet we still cannot stop ourselves from embracing the next new thing, because that's just how we're wired, then what strategies can we devise to maintain control, dignity, meaning? 64,000 is the median number of words per book. Average person reads about 200 words per minute. Simple math will tell us that is one book in 320 minutes. To accomplish this in seven days, numbers say you would have to read for 45 minutes a day. Don't forget to subscribe. Hit that notification button, like, comment, and share. Enjoy. Welcome to the Book of the Week series. Every week, as I read another amazing title, I share it with the world. My name is Igor S.F. Walker, and today we look at amusing ourselves to death. Public discourse in the age of show business by Neil and Andrew Postman. So, how about you slow down and relax? Reduce all that noise for just a bit. Make that choice and decide to listen. In this video, we look at a 21st century book published in the 20th century. We examine how media are implicated in our epistemologies. The clearest way to see through a culture is to attend to its tools for conversation. We discover that entertainment in the supra-ideology of all discourse in television. The most important things one learns is always something about how one learns. We learn what we do. Stick around till the end. I will share with you some tools I haven't used that will help you tremendously in this game of life. Discover a way to find out what actually motivates you. What innate human need is driving all of your decisions and your behavior. I will share some tools to improve your self-awareness, social awareness, self-management, and relationship management. Alongside Orwell's dark vision, there's another slightly older, slightly less known, equally chilling, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. Huxley and Orwell did not prophesize the same thing. Orwell warns that we will be overcome by an externally imposed oppression. But in Huxley's vision, no big brother is required to deprive people of their autonomy, maturity, and history. As he saw it, people will come to love their oppression, to adore the technologies that undo their capacities to think. What Orwell feared 
was those who would ban books. What Huxley feared was that there would be no reason to ban a book, for there would be no one who wanted to read one. Orwell feared those who would deprive us of information. Huxley feared those who would give us so much information that we would be reduced to passivity and egoism. Orwell feared that the truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared that the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Orwell feared we would become a captive culture. Huxley feared we would become a trivial culture, preoccupied with some equivalent of the feelies, the orgy-porgy, and the centrifugal bumple puppy. Orwell feared that what we hate will ruin us. Huxley feared that what we love will ruin us. We are all, as Huxley says, someplace great abbreviators, meaning that none of us has the wit to know the whole truth. The time to tell it, if we believed we did, or an audience so gullible as to actually accept it. Use the word conversation, metaphorically to refer not only to speech, but to all techniques and technologies that permit people of a particular culture to exchange messages. In this sense, all culture is a conversation, or more precisely, a corporation of conversations conducted in a variety of symbolic modes. This idea that there is a content called the news of the day was entirely created by the telegraph and then since amplified by newer media which made it possible to move decontextualized information over vast spaces at incredible speeds. The news of the day is a figment of our technological imagination. It is quite precisely a media event. An attempt to fragment all of the events from all over the world. Because we have multiple media and media forms, and those forms are well suited to fragmented conversations. How people think about time and space and about things and processes will be greatly influenced by the grammatical features of their language. Suppose that all their human minds, we dare not suppose that all human minds unanimously understand how the world is put together. How much more divergence there is in worldview among different cultures can be imagined when we consider the great number and variety of tools for conversation that go beyond speech. Each medium, like the language itself, makes possible a unique mode of discourse by providing a new orientation for thought, for expression, for sensibility. Digging becomes easier if we start from the assumption that in every tool that do we do create, an idea is embedded that goes beyond the function 
of the thing itself. It has been pointed out, for example, that the invention of the eyeglasses in the 12th century not only made it possible to improve defective vision, but suggested the idea that human beings need not accept as final neither the endowments of nature or the ravages of time. When Galileo remarked that the language of nature is written in mathematics, he meant it only as a metaphor. Nature itself doesn't speak, neither do our minds or our bodies, or to that point, this book, or the body's politics. Our conversations about nature and about ourselves are conducted in whatever languages we actually find it possible and convenient to employ. We do not see nature or intelligence or human motivation or ideology as it is, but only as our languages allow it. And our languages are our mediator. Our media are our metaphors. Our metaphors create the content of our culture. A great media metaphor shift has taken place in America and in the world with these results that the content of much of our public discourse has become dangerous nonsense. We do not measure a culture by its output of undisguised trivialities, but by what it claims is significant. Therein lies our problem, for television is at its most trivial, therefore most dangerous when its aspirations are high, when it presents itself as a carrier of important cultural conversations. Epistemiology is a complex and usually opaque subject concerned with the origins and nature of knowledge. The part of its subject matter that is relevant here is the interest it takes in definitions of truth and the sources from which such definitions come. You are mistaken in believing that the form in which an idea is conveyed is irrelevant to its truth. In the academic world, the published word is invested with great prestige and authenticity than the spoken word. What people say is assumed to be more casually uttered than what they actually write. The written word is assumed to have been reflected upon and revised by its author, reviewed by authorities and editors, and it is easier to verify or refute. And it also is invested with an impersonal and objective character. The written word, by its nature, addresses the world, not an individual. The written word indoors the spoken word disappears, and that is why writing is closer to the truth than speaking. That the concept of truth is intimately linked to the biases of forms of expression. Truth 
does not and never has come unadored. But it must appear in its proper clothing or it's not acknowledged. Which is a way of saying that the truth is kind of a cultural prejudice. Each culture conceives of it as being most authentically, authentically expressed in certain symbolic forms, then another culture may regard it as trivial or irrelevant. We come astonishingly close to the mystical beliefs of Pythagoras and his followers who attempted to submit all of life to the sovereignty of numbers. Many of our psychologists, sociologists, economists, and other later-day Kabbalists will have numbers to tell them the truth, or they will have nothing. Can you imagine, for example, a modern economist articulating truths about our standard of living by reciting a poem, or by telling what happened to him during a late-night walk through East St. Louis, or by offering a series of proverbs and parables beginning with the saying about a rich man, a camel, and the eye of a needle. The first would be regarded as irrelevant, the second merely anecdotal, and the last one childish. But to the modern mind, resonating with different media metaphors, the truth in economics is believed to be best discovered and expressed in numbers. As a culture moves, from orality, to writing, to printing, to televising, its ideas of truth move with it. Every philosophy is the philosophy of a stage of life, Nietzsche remarked, to which we might actually add that every epistemiology is the epistemiology of a stage of media development. Truth by the time itself, is a product of conversation a man has with himself about and through the techniques of communication he has invented. Since intelligence is primarily defined as one's capacity to grasp the truth of things, it follows that what a culture means by intelligence is derived from the character of its important forms of communication. The abundant flow of information had very little or nothing to do with those to whom it was addressed. That is, with any social or intellectual context in which it was embedded. How often does it occur that information provided to you on morning radio or television or the morning newspaper causes you to alter your plans for the day? or to take some action you would not otherwise have taken, or provides insight into some problem you are required to solve. Most of our daily news is inert, consisting of information that gives us something to talk about, but cannot lead to any meaningful action. So what steps do you plan to take to reduce, reduce the conflict in the Middle East, or the rates of inflation? crime, unemployment, what are your plans for preserving the environment or reducing the risk of nuclear war? What do you plan to do about OPAC, the CIA, affirmative action, uh, 
the monstrous treatment of the Baha'is in Iran. I shall take the liberty of answering this for you. You plan to do nothing about them. You may, of course, cast a ballot for someone who claims to have some plans as well as the power to act, but this you can do only once every two or four years, giving one hour of your time hardly a satisfying means of expressing the broad range of options and opinions that you do hold. <clears throat> the contribution of the Telegraph to the public discourse was to dignify irrelevance and amplify impotence. The principal strength of the Telegraph was its capacity to move information, not collect it, explain it, or analyze it. Move information quickly. Books, for example, are an excellent container for the accumulation, quiet scrutiny, and organized analysis of information and ideas. It takes time to write a book and to read one, time to discuss its contents and to make judgments about their merit, including the form of their presentation. That the image and the world have different functions, work at different levels of abstraction, and require different modes and of response will not come as a new idea to anyone. Painting is at least three times as old as writing. If we all built castles in the air. It would be okay. The problem comes when we try to live in them. The communications media of the late 19th and early 20th century, with telegraphy and photography at their center, called the peekaboo, peekaboo world into existence. But we did not come to live there until television. Television gave the epistemological basis of the telegraph and the photograph their most potent expression, television, raising the interplay of image and instancy to exquisite and dangerous perfection. And it brought them into the hall, and they got them into the home. Television is the command center of the new epistemology. There's no audience so young that is barred from television. There is no poverty so object that it must forego television. There's no education so exalted that it is not modified by television. And most important of all, there is no subject of public interest, politics, news, education, religion, science, sports, that does not find its way to television. Which means that all public understanding of these subjects is shaped by the biases of television. What I am claiming here is not that the television is just entertaining, but that it has made entertainment itself the natural format for the representation of all experience. Our television set keeps us in constant communion with the world, but it does so with a face whose smiling confidence is unalterable.
The problem is not that the television presents us with entertaining subject matter, but that all subject matter is presented as entertaining, which is a whole other issue. Using this word almost in the precise sense in which it is used by spies in the CIA or the KGB, disinformation does not mean false information. It means misleading information, misplaced, irrelevant, fragmented, or superficial information, information that creates the illusion of knowing something, but which in fact leads one away from knowing. Ignorance is always correctable, but what shall we do if we take ignorance to be knowledge? In the same contest, context, it's a key phrase here, in the same context, because it is the context that defines contradiction. There's no problem in someone's remarking that he prefers oranges to apples, and also remarking that he prefers apples to oranges. Not if one statement is made in the context of choosing wallpaper design, and the other one in the context of selecting fruit or dessert. In such a case, we have statements that are opposite but not contradictory. We are by now so thoroughly adjusted to the, and now this, world of news. A world of fragments. When even stand alone, stripped of any connection to the past or to the future or to the other events, that all assumptions of coherence have vanished. And so, it has contradiction. In the context of no context, so to speak, it simply disappears. And in its absence, what possible interest could there be in a list of what the president says now and what he said then? public has adjusted to incoherence and has been amused into indifference. It has been demonstrated many times that the culture can survive misinformation and false opinion, but it has not yet been demonstrated whether a culture can survive if it takes the measure of the world in 22 minutes, or if the value of its news is determined by the number of laughs it provides. The television commercial is not all about the character of products to be consumed. It is all about the character of the consumers of products. What the advertiser needs to know is not what is the right amount or what is the right about the product, but what is wrong about the consumer. And so the balance of business expenditure shifts from product research to market research. The television commercial has oriented business away from making products of value and towards making consumers feel valuable, which means that the business of business has now become pseudotherapy. On television, the politician does not so much offer the audience an image of himself as offer himself as an image of the audience. 
and therein lies one of the most powerful influences of the television commercial in the political discourse. Book is all history. Everything about it takes one back in time, from the way it is produced, to its linear mode of exposition, to the fact that the past tense is its most comfortable form of address has no other medium before or since. The book promotes a sense of a coherent and usable past. We do not refuse to remember, neither do we find it exactly useless to remember. Rather, we are being rendered unfit to remember. For if remembering is to be something more than nostalgia. It requires a contextual basis, a theory, a vision, a metaphor, something within which facts can be organized and then patterns discerned. In searching the literature about education, you will find it said by some that children learn best when they're interested in what they are learning. You will also find said Plato and Dewey emphasize this, that reason is best cultivated when it is rooted in robust emotional ground. You will even find some who say that learning is best facilitated by a loving and benign teacher. But no one has ever said or implied that significant learning is effectively, durably, and truthfully achieved when education is entertaining. Learning to be critical, to think conceptually and rigorously, do not come easy to the young, but are hard-fought victories. Indeed, Cicero remarked that the purpose of the education is to free the student from the tyranny of the present which cannot be pleasurable for those, like the young, who are actually struggling hard to do the opposite, that is, accommodate themselves to the present. The name we may properly give to an education without prerequisites, perplexity, and exposition is entertainment. The consequences of this reorientation are to be observed not only in the decline of the potency of the classroom, but paradoxically in the refashioning of the classroom into a place where both teaching and learning are intended to be vastly amusing activities. What Huxley teaches is that in the age of the advanced technology, spiritual devastation is more likely to come from an enemy with a smiling face than from one whose countenance exudes suspicion and hate. Big Brother does not watch us by his choice. We watch him by ours. There's no need for wardens or gates or ministries of truth when a population becomes distracted by trivia when cultural life is redefined as a perpetual round of entertainments, when serious public conversation becomes a form of baby talk, when, in short, people become an audience 
and their public business a vaudeville act, then the nation finds itself at risk and culture death is a clear possibility. Everything in our own background has prepared us to know and resist a prison when the gates begin to close around. What if there are no crises of anguish to be heard? Who is prepared to take arms against a sea of amusements? To whom do we complain? And when and in what tone of voice? When serious discourse dissolves into giggles. What is the antidote to cultures being drained by laughter? I fear that our philosophers have given us no guidance in this matter. Their warnings have customarily been directed against those consciously formulated ideologies that appeal to the worst tendencies in human nature. To be unaware that a technology comes equipped with a program for social change. To maintain that technology is neutral. To make the assumption that technology is always a friend to culture. Is at this late hour stupidity, plain and simple. The problem, in any case, does not reside in what people watch. The problem is in that we watch. Now the solution must be found in how we watch. We are in a race between education and disaster. And he wrote continuously about the necessity of our understanding the politics and epistemology of media. For in the end, what he was trying to tell us that what afflicted the people in Brave New World was not that they were laughing instead of thinking, but that they did not know what they were laughing about and why they had stopped thinking. And there you have it, amusing ourselves to death. Please. Do help out. It is easy. Simply like this video so more people can enjoy it. Help the algorithm. Share it. Share it. Share it. Spread the word. Leave a comment and share your thoughts. Subscribe to my channel and stay up to date. And the link to this book is in the description below. So you buy it and you read and you never stop learning, especially learning about yourself and nature. So gift yourself by taking the free human needs test on my website and find out what actually motivates you. What innate human need is driving all of your decisions and all of your behavior. And if you feel you are ready to improve your self-awareness, social awareness, self-management and relationship management even further, well, do check out my Master of Life Awareness program. The links are in the description below. Thank you. Love and respect.